Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, here's what's coming up on this edition of The Intersection. This podcast is being released on the weekend prior to Valentine's Day, and I want to open up with some comments on romance and marriage from Rhonda Stoppy. Then it's Michelle Cox who has played a role in writing two books that are intended to help men and women look for and appreciate evidence of the presence of God in their lives. And on this edition of The Intersection, two gentlemen with connections to Oscar-nominated films. First, it's Cutter Calloway of Fuller Theological Seminary who shares some insight into the film Silence. He recently interviewed the director, Martin Scorsese. And Ava DeVernay, has an Oscar-nominated short film called 13th. She enlisted a number of people to comment on race and justice, one of whom was Craig DeRoach of Prison Fellowship, who discussed his perspective with me. In addition, on this Intersection podcast, perspective from Fox News commentator and author Todd Starnes, who has written a book about religious freedom issues and how Christians can be effective witnesses in the current political climate. Finally, discussing the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court, it's Stuart Shepard from Family Policy Alliance, a public policy partner of Focus on the Family. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. I had a chance recently to speak with the No Regrets woman, Rhonda Stoppy. She offered some refreshing and inspiring insight into the marriage relationship and how to keep romance alive. She has authored the book, If My Husband Would Change, I'd Be Happy, and Other Myths Wives Believe. I asked her to share if romance was a biblical concept, so here we go. It's Rhonda Stoppy. Well, I think if you read the Song of Solomon, yes, it is. And he put into words how he felt about his love, and he romanced her with his words. And so for any husbands that are listening, I know that may seem like a huge uh, challenge, but what if you wrote a romantic note to your wife? And it doesn't have to be poetry. It doesn't have to be the Song of Solomon. But I, And here's another example. My husband, who is not a romantic, we've been married 35 years Coming up on our 25th anniversary, he's like, okay, babe, what do you want for our 25th? What's something special? I go, I got to tell you, what I really want from you is a love letter. And deer in the headlights, this guy looked at me like, <laughs> what, what language are you talking? I said, I just want a letter from you that tells me how much you love me and what you've loved about our, our years together. And I watched him. This was months before the, the anniversary. I watched him and waited, and I kept asking him, have you written your letter yet? And he's like, nope, nope, nope. And finally, about a week before our, our anniversary, I said, have you written your letter, letter yet? He said, I will give you $1,000 if you don't make me write that letter. <laughs> and you know what? I know my man. I know he loves me. I know his, his love language is acts of service. That man, I get up in the morning, and there's coffee made every morning of my life. He does the dishes before I get out of bed. He is just a servant, and that is how he shows me his love. Um, so for me to put him in a box and say, no, if you're going to be romance, it has to look like this, um, I think we're going to uh, oftentimes cause strain during those holidays. Uh, instead of saying, okay, babe, I know you're not a romantic, or maybe you are. When Steve and I were dating, and I write about a lot of our love story, and if my husband would change, I'd be happy, and other myths, wives believe, <laughs> uh, he would drive across town from work on his lunch hour and he would bring me flowers and it would take him 30 minutes to get to my house and 30 minutes to get back to work. So he literally had time to give me the flowers and go back to work. And I would clutch the flowers as he drove away and I would say, 
how romantic. And he continued his gift giving of flowers for many, many years and after we were married. And then when I became a stay-at-home mom, uh, we had to cut our budget pretty tight so that I could stay home with my first child. And uh, we really went back and forth on if we were going to be able to do it or not. But he came home one of the first uh, Valentine's Day with flowers from a florist which, you know, you, that's expensive. And, I, and he brought him in with a big smile on his face, and I grabbed the flowers. And instead of saying how romantic, I said, oh, how expensive. Babe, you could get these at the grocery store. And it crushed him. And I saw that his one thing that he did that he knew I thought was romantic for all those years he was courting me, now I was saying, number one, it's not romantic to me anymore. Number two, you don't make enough to romance me because I am trying to stay home with our kid, and I crushed him. So it's learning to um, the seasons in our lives what romance looks like and how to coach our husbands without crushing them when they make an attempt. Hmm. So, Rhonda, before we take a break, one question with respect to the love letter, a little cliffhanger. You gave us a little cliffhanger a few moments ago, so I'm still wondering. I'm waiting for the answer. So did he ever <laughs> write it? Did he write that letter? <laughs> No, I didn't make him. I said, then uh, my gift, my 25th anniversary gift to you is you don't have to write it. And he said, wow. oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and he took me on a cruise, and it was great. We went to Mexico, and it was fun. <laughs> and you know what? Then on the cruise ship, you know, they have those photos uh, all yeah. along a cruise ship. If you've never been on one, that's our. it's actually quite inexpensive if you go, like, on the last-minute deals. And so there's all these photo booths that you can walk around on the ship and get your picture taken. My husband hates to get his picture taken. But on this 25th anniversary, he posed for a picture, and it was leaning over a piano, which he plays the piano. It was a, a grand piano, and he's leaning over, looking into my eyes. You know, they're coaching him, telling him how to look romantic. And that picture, uh, he bought it for me. It's on canvas. I think it was $65, which we were in ministry. We still are. And we had kids at home, so it was a big stretch to spend that much money on it. Um, and I still have it, and it's a very romantic gift, and it reminds me more than that love letter even would have how much he really does love me, and he really is a romantic at heart. He just doesn't know, he doesn't express it the way maybe some other guys would. <laughs> Rhonda Stoppy here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website noregretswoman.com. The Intersection continues now with Michelle Cox of Just 18 Summers. In a recent conversation, she discussed two books she's co-written with John Perrodin, God Glimpses from the Jewelry Box, Becoming Jewels God Can Use, and God Glimpses from the Toolbox, Living as Men of Character and Strength, Encouraging People to Look for God in Their Lives. Here now is Michelle Cox. Sometimes it feels like God's a million miles away, particularly when we're going through difficult times. But one day it hit me that if we'll look for Him, we'll discover that His fingerprints are evident in every aspect of our lives, whether it's the items in our jewelry box or our toolbox or a day at the spa. If we'll look for Him, we can find new glimpses of Him in every day. So when you, when you look at these, these images are very powerful. You're talking about a jewelry box, a toolbox. Share with me how it is that you really developed these, I guess, these images or these analogies here. Well, we take 30 items that you'd find in a woman's toolbox or a man's, a man's toolbox or a woman's jewelry box, and we put the spiritual application with them. And it's so cool how those tie together. Um, we add a quote, a verse of scripture, a prayer at the end, and then we have a question and answer section in the jewelry box book. It's a jewelry insurance inventory form so that we as women can take inventory of our hearts. And in the toolbox book, it's a building permit page. What will we permit God to do with our lives? Well, Michelle, let's give our listeners some examples here with 
respect to the the jewelry box, what are some of the items that you wanted to concentrate on and share with me what they represent in our spiritual lives? Well, one of, one of those is a strand of pearls. And there was a young woman whose mother was a hoarder when her mom passed away. She had the big task of cleaning all the things out of her mom's home, and she found a box of jewelry with a you know, junk toy, or she found a box of junk toys with a strand of pearls in it. And she started to throw it away, but the friend who was with her that day said, no, why don't we just let a jeweler look at those just to make sure. So they took the pearls to the jeweler who warmed them in his hands, who blew on them and then polished them with a cloth. And he said, oh, no, girls, not only are these real, but these are extremely valuable. The hand knotting superb. The luster is amazing. He said, they're some of the most beautiful pearls I've ever seen. And, you know, that's how God does when he looks at us. We look at ourselves and we think, oh, I'm worthless. I, I have no value whatsoever. But God says, oh, wait a minute, girls. I thought you were so valuable. I gave my life for you. I paid a great price. And he says... You know, you are valuable to me. And if God thinks we're valuable, then maybe we should start looking at ourselves in that light as well. And share with me an example now from the the Toolbox book. Well, I'm glad you're sitting down, Bob, because sometimes men don't read the instructions. I know that's going to come as a shock to you. Oh, that's purely, that's a stereotype. Got to be. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hold that thought. But, you know, the, the, there were a couple of guys, and one of them had just gotten the new Mac Daddy of all grills with all the bells and whistles, and he invited his buddies over for a cookout and to help him put the grill together. And one of them said, should we read the instructions? And they're like, nah, we got this. So they put the grill together, but when they got done, there were pieces left over and the grill wouldn't work. And they tried and tried to get it fixed. And finally, one of them said, maybe we should read the instructions. And when they did, they discovered that there was a piece that was supposed to go on near the beginning of the installation process. And so they had to rip it apart, rebuild it, and their food was delayed. And, you know, God gives us the best instruction book ever, but if we don't pick it up and use it, it doesn't do any good to us. And that's when we start messing up because we haven't followed his directions. What would you say would be the main takeaway for the readers of each book? Well, you know, if you stop and think about it, as women, each of us, as we go about our day, we're accessories for God. When other people look at us, then they see bling for the king or they see a tarnished woman. And so, you know, it's it's a great reminder, just like silver tarnishes, that we need to polish our lives and to, um, you know, keep close to God, spending time in his word, and that kind of thing. And again, with the toolbox, if we don't use our tools, if we don't keep them polished and, and clean and ready to use, then when, when the job comes about, when we need to use them, we're not ready and available. A dull saw won't cut wood. Um, you know, if you don't charge your power tools, they're not going to work. It takes time. It takes commitment. And, you know, it takes things like instead of feeding the lawn on Sunday, going to church and sitting there with our families and feeding our faith. But those are the kinds of things that will please the heart of God. And then, you know, a really important thing for parents to remember is that we have little eyes that are watching us each day to see how we're living. Michelle Cox here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website godglimpses.com. The next two highlights on this edition of The Intersection are from two gentlemen with a connection to Oscar-nominated films. 
I had a chance recently to talk with Cutter Calloway, professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. He had interviewed filmmaker Martin Scorsese for the Fuller Studio about his film Silence. Cutter Calloway discussed some of the themes contained within the movie. Here he is now. A lot of what we're trying to do is, is think about those voices and people that would generate or provoke um, a conversation that, that we wouldn't normally hear um, in our various sort of echo chambers. And, and in fact, that's exactly the same thing we wanted to do here with, with Scorsese um, and his film. Um, you know, a filmmaker that is known by a lot of people for making, you know, rather profane films. I mean, he made The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, he, he made, uh, probably more famously in Christian circles, uh, The Last Temptation yep. of the Christ. And, yep. and people simply boycotted it. So here we've got this really um, interesting filmmaker who's grappling with questions of faith um, through film, and it's it's not uncomplicated. And, and we think that really sort of uh, generate the kind of conversation that, that we need to have um, in, in today's society. Well, what did you learn as a result of being engaged in a conversation with this man? You know, a few things. One is probably the most interesting thing, and the uh, uh, the full Q&A will be released here sometime soon, um, so people can go watch it. But um, I found it really interesting. He, he commented a bit about his work on The Departed, and I don't know if you are aware of that film or know of it. Um, it's the one movie he's won an Academy Award for, um, Jack Nicholson, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, and, and, and it's a, a really sort of nihilistic take um, on life and society. And it was really fascinating to hear him talk about one of the more recent things that prompted him to make Silence, to make Hugo even, um, which is a much more uh, family, or, or family-friendly film. He wanted to make a movie for that his grandkids could watch. Um, and he basically said that at the end of filming The Departed, he just felt like he had hit a sort of moral ground zero um, and, and needed to do something different. Um, and that's part of why he, he made Silence and some of these other uh, films. And, and I just, I found it really interesting coming from someone who's creating their work almost as if they, they realized um, some of the things that they're, that, well, Scorsese in particular, that his film is doing or, or might be suggesting, and, and thinking, how might I reclaim that, um, shift some of that? How might I be responsible for some of the conversations um, going on in culture? And, and what could I do as, a, as an artist to um, help a more constructive dialogue happen? So that was one of the things that I found probably most compelling about um, our interview, uh, among a number of things. Tell me from viewing, of course, being familiar with the novel, having viewed the film, mm -hmm. what are some of the, as we might say, some of the big questions that the film raises? Well, in my mind, it's, it's, there's two things on the table. One um, is really just a question of, of doubt um, as, a, as a person of faith. I mean, the, the story follows really dedicated missionaries who, who have, you know, dedicated their entire lives to spreading the gospel to, um, and not just spreading the gospel, but caring for and loving the people uh, to whom God has, has put in their care. Um, and and the challenge of doing that when it seems as if God is completely silent, um, the challenge of doing that when it seems as if God is, is uh, indifferent or uncaring towards some of the, the violence we see in the world, uh, and especially to the suffering we see of the people that are in our midst. Um, and so in, in, on one hand, that's one of the the interesting theological questions, questions about of people of faith, people who are in any kind of ministry in whatever context. Um, the other side of it, and this kind of comes to the, uh, the sort of culminating point of the movie, um, is this question about 
at what point um, is is our calling concrete and and contextual? And I don't really want to ruin the <laughs> spoil the movie for anyone who hasn't uh, seen it or uh, hasn't read the novel, but um, it really asks the question of of are we committed um, in our quest to um, endure and suffer for the faith? Um, are there moments where um, we do that because we actually see ourselves as Jesus, as the as the sort of suffering servant himself, or is there a sense in which that is um, a kind of idol that we need to smash? That in fact um, we might um, have a, a, a sort of elevated picture of ourselves um, and the and the roles that we take uh, in caring and loving for people in our lives. So I think those are the two big challenges um, that it faces of of how do we, uh, you know, live life as people of faith in the midst of doubt. And then on the other side, um, it, it, we are prone to sort of self-deception. And, and what are some of those idols that we might need to um, to identify as false idols in order to live faithfully? Cutter Callaway here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website fuller.edu. Well, Craig DeRoach joined me recently. He is Senior Vice President for Advocacy and Public Policy for Prison Fellowship. He discussed his involvement in the Oscar-nominated short film 13th from filmmaker Ava DuVernay, who is known for her work on Selma. He also talked about his organization's approach to justice issues, including racial inequality in the justice system. From that conversation, this is Craig DeRoach. Well, what the director is trying to get across, and, and first to point out, and I agree with you, if people are, are watching this film to think it would be something that Prison Fellowship produced or, or that follows our storyline. It does not. You know, we, we were added into a voice. It's, uh, um, you know, more of a progressive, secular viewpoint film. And we were just um, respectfully uh, invited to contribute, you know, our opinion from a faith perspective. And uh, we did. And, and, uh, um, the storyline really is that the title is 13th because the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution uh, was uh, what Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, pushed through just before his death that um, outlawed slavery and uh, forced servitude in the United States of America, except for people that had been convicted of a crime. And really the premise of what the director is saying is that that um, exception while it may have been necessary legally, right, to, you know, uh, uh, when somebody uh, does harm to somebody else, they have a debt to pay. They need to be forced to do that by the court. So it was more of a legal acknowledgement. What, what the director is uh, actually um, building on with the title is that that um, continued in America, uh, the treatment of people um, with, you know, by and large minorities, but anyone with a criminal record, uh, in, in the poor treatment that was given before uh, the Civil War, but, you know, when we had slavery and through the different eras that we had in America, Jim Crow uh, um, and the Civil Rights Movement of, you know, through uh, the, the past century and, and even has a tail into today where uh, um, what is needed is, is uh, to loosen the grip of, of um, uh, the disproportionate number of minorities that are involved in the criminal justice system. So it takes a... Uh, a very complicated uh, uh, state of affairs that we're in currently and, and uh, makes that argument. Talk about what you see with respect to the racial inequality in that whole area of incarceration and maybe some of the, the causes that you have observed. I don't know of anybody, uh, um, uh, Christian, conservative, Republican, to the right, 
you know, the people that you normally wouldn't associate with uh, um, racial politics or, or uh, um, you know, uh, uh, concern about, you know, identity politics, things of that nature, that wouldn't say, as a matter of fact, uh, we do have a very disproportionate number of minorities that are um, arrested and prosecuted, uh, convicted and incarcerated um, in in America. And I think that it that it's too simple to say that it's racism uh, because of the fact as you look at those numbers and that disproportionate behavior occurs. My hometown is is in the Detroit area, Detroit, Michigan, where we had a African-American mayors and, and uh, prosecutors and police chiefs for the time period that I talked about from the, you know, the 70s uh, up until uh, um, just a couple of years ago. And, and the arrest rates look the same as they did in the South or in other areas where people would say, aha, see a remnant of racism. So you really have a structural problem uh, with uh, perverse incentives to the police and the prosecutors of where resources go. Um, there's a lack of check and balances, too. You, you'd see that um, uh, um, the economics play a huge role in this. If a person has a defense counsel or not, uh, they, they uh, usually have an opportunity to, to seek a restorative sentence and move forward with their life after they pay it back. If they have counsel, if not, uh, they tend to find themselves in, in uh, prison at a far greater rate. And so there are all these other factors. factors. Race is, is part of it. Uh, you know, race, it's eight to one right now uh, for the same uh, uh, crimes, the likelihood that uh, um, an African-American versus a Caucasian person will be incarcerated. So it's a real, it's, it's, it's not imaginary, it's a fact, but the factors that contribute to that are structural, economic, sociological, uh, based on uh, um, things like um, uh, uh, defense counsel availability and, and all sorts of other factors. And, and that dis does occur in predominantly minority-run cities as well with the arrest and conviction and incarceration of other minorities. And so, yes, we have a, the numbers tell us that we have a problem, but it isn't entirely solved by uh, race or racism. That, that's not uh, the entirety of what we're up against in America anymore. And I would say thank God to that, you know, that, that um, we're, we're um, moving past that as being the reason for the problem, but we still have a problem. Craig DeRoach here on The Intersection. Learn more about the ministry by going to prisonfellowship.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit, you'll find a link marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection through the website and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, Todd Starnes joined me recently. He is with Fox News and specializes in news and commentary relative to religious liberty issues. In that conversation, he discussed some of the principles he relates in his book, The Deplorable's Guide to Making America Great Again. Here now from that conversation is Todd Starnes. Well, I started writing the book the day after um, the uh, the president was elected. Donald Trump won the, won the presidency. So this was a quick, quick write for me. But I 
I, you know, I, I took the, the name of the book after an insult that Hillary Clinton delivered uh, on the campaign trail. Uh, she was in New York City talking to a group of LGBT activists, and she talked about the, the people who follow Donald Trump, those who support traditional marriage and uh, believe in having a sovereign nation and securing our borders. And she called those folks a basket of deplorables, irredeemable deplorables. And I got to tell you something, Bob. I I really took that as a badge of honor that 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 word deplorable. And I think many people embraced, you know, that that insult as uh, as a badge of honor, much like we did back in 2007 when President Obama was talking about the folks who cling to their guns and cling to their religion, and he called them better Americans. And I write in the book that you know I'm proud to call myself a gun-toting, Bible-clinging, deplorable American. And I, you know, I'm not bitter. I'm blessed, and I'm not irredeemable. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and I believe that, um, you know, that, that that's how a good many people across the country feel. Um, much like back in the in the early days of Christianity, when the the word Christian was considered to be an offensive term, uh, but but the the followers of Christ embraced that 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 term, and of course now we we proudly call ourselves Christians. But I want to say something about the, the book, uh, the Deplorables Guide. It really is a handbook, uh, Bob. Uh, at the end of every chapter, we provide marching orders for people. Uh, giving them practical ways they can restore traditional American values in their uh, communities uh, and in their homes. And because ultimately, we can't rely on Donald Trump to do everything. We have to step up to the plate and that we as Christians, we have to be good citizens. So how do we do that? Well, we lay out that, that, that guide in the deplorables. You know, I think it's interesting because Donald Trump uh, was having some wonderful meetings with um, with key evangelical leaders, and he was making them promises about things uh, involving the pro-life movement, the Johnson Amendment, which prevents pastors or prevents uh, tax-exempt organizations from endorsing or opposing candidates. And uh, just, gosh um, – you know, just last week when the president was speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast, he reaffirmed his promise to uh, to get rid of the Johnson Amendment, which is going to be a huge, huge help for many uh, pastors and many churches across the country. Um, and, and look what he did with the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, he, again, is delivering on all the things that he promised uh, the religious right, uh, the, the evangelicals. So, uh, look, I mean – is he a Sunday school teacher or a preacher? No, not at all. But he's promised to defend those things that are important to people of faith. And I can respect that. And he's doing a good job of that. What do you see as some of the main components that Christians need to be aware of as we seek to be obedient to God and communicate his truth? I think one of the most important things that we have to remember is the admonishment in, in Corinthians when uh, Paul told us not to be noisy gongs or clanging cymbals. You know, over the past, uh, gosh, month or so, we have seen protests from the left uh, that have just been just ugly, just plain ugly and violent. We can't do that. We're, you know, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. 
and so you can't be an ambassador for Christ if you're, you know, literally bashing somebody on the head, uh, you know, with a Bible. You know, you just can't do that. So, so we, we we try to affirm the idea of being a happy warrior. Uh, in the book, because look, ultimately, when you read the book of Revelation, we know how this thing turns out. We we know where this is all going. Todd Starnes here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to toddstarnes.com or go to the book website at deplorablesbook.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Stuart Shepard, executive producer of Creative Communications for Family Policy Alliance, a public policy partner of Focus on the Family. Recently, he provided some commentary relative to the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. From that conversation, this is Stuart Shepard. The people on his campaign realized there were a lot of us going, boy, we just, this is not our guy. I mean, he's not an evangelical Christian. He's not a movement pro-life conservative. So, you know, we had questions, and, and they're good questions, and we still should continue to ask those questions. So, but that list came out and, you know, the likes of the Heritage Foundation and, and other organizations that really dig into the nuances of these judges, they looked at them and they went, this is a great list. Well, out of that list, perhaps the one of the best candidates that was named is Neil Gorsuch. And the book you were talking about, he wrote a, a treatise on physician-assisted suicide, considering both sides of the issue. Uh, Robbie George, who's a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton, worked with him on it. It was printed through the Princeton University Press. And Robbie George was impressed with the way that he truly considered the arguments from the opposing view, which, of course, surmises that he's pro-life. There's no question about that. But he actually wanted to treat the arguments from the other side fairly and, and, and to present them in the best light that he could. I mean, he wanted to be fair about presenting their arguments and their point of view so that when you read this thing, you could really look at both arguments and consider them. And, you know, our, our point of view, Bob, has always been if you fairly consider the arguments from both sides, the Christian point of view is going to win out. And that's how he approached it, because he felt, well, clearly the pro-life view is going to win out. We don't have to ignore or you know, misrepresent the arguments from the other side. We can look at those honestly and say, and here's why that doesn't work. And that's what he did in that book, which is fascinating. Here, here's the other thing, and this is because I'm a longtime media guy. I was blown <laughs> away by the time of day that they made the announcement. I won't go on a great length about this, but typically when a president wants to make a major announcement like, uh, you know, a Supreme Court justice, they'll do it at midday. And the reason they do it at midday is so that the TV news people can go out and get interviews and whatnot in the afternoon, and then it could be on the nightly news that evening at whatever time it airs in your time zone. Well, that's the ordinary, and, and Barack Obama, <laughs> he always seemed to schedule things right at the beginning of the Rush Limbaugh program. Surely it was accidental. I don't know. But it happened over and over and over again that he would do them right at about 1207 uh, so he just upend, you know, the, the loudest conservative voice in the country. Well, here, but not Donald Trump. No, he schedules it at eight o'clock Eastern. What in the world? And I looked at that and I thought, this is brilliant because this shows that his team understands the media, because what he did by doing that, he completely took it away from the evening news to put the narrative and the context and reduce him to a soundbite. And here's what's wrong with this candidate and the opposing voices completely took that away from them because it was such a big deal. They had to carry it live. So they did. 
but it was after the evening news was on the air. So who gets the first word on his nominee? Donald Trump does. He gets to tell you who it is because he cleverly <laughs> hid who it was going to be until the very last moment, brought both candidates to D.C. So you couldn't even surmise from that who it's going to be and then walks him out. That's the first the media knew who it was. But here's what was brilliant about it. We're we're entering a ratings month, which means that there is intense pressure on the networks to get their primetime schedule on. So we got to squeeze in this this uh, announcement, but then we've got to get right into our primetime programming because that's when the ratings are sent, which is when uh, how they set ad revenue. So after he was done with his 10 or 15 minutes of announcing and allowing Neil Gorsuch to introduce himself, which you came away from that thinking, wow, this guy is, he's humble. He's highly qualified. He talked about his faith. He loves his wife. What a wonderful human. Well, then they came out to do where they usually would give you the narrative. This is what we think about the candidate and the context. Well, here's what people, no, they didn't have any time for that. NBC News, I timed it. It was just about two minutes that they had to give a couple of comments. And then they said, and that's our special report. And they went to programming. So <laughs> Mr. Trump and his nominee got the bulk of that report. And the usual commentators, the talking heads, were completely handcuffed on the time that they had. Went over to CBS. They went another couple of minutes longer. But you get the idea. He completely controlled the narrative. That's fascinating to me. Stuart Shepard here on The Intersection. Go to Family Policy Alliance to learn more about his organization. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center through that site. Also, you can get subscribed to the Intersection podcast. Two blogs are accessible, and you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.